Thank you very much for coming. Um, my name is Peter Florence, and I'm a patron of Lebri Poetry. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you, the audience in Burgage Hall here, and you, the audience on Zoom. Hello, everyone, from wherever you are dialing in. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to Ledbury. This is um, the fifth or sixth uh, event in the Dead Poets Society series, which is designed to complement the extraordinary program that uh, Chloe and Stephanie have put together of contemporary poets from Britain. Having said that, our subject tonight seems in lots of ways incredibly contemporary, whilst at the same time both being a classicist and part of the Romantic movement, which defines in lots of ways the language that we speak today. I'm joined by uh, an amazing panel, Dinah Rowe, who is a um, Romantic specialist from Oxford Brookes University, the great poet Don Patterson, who is our poet in residence here this year, um, his book, the poem, by the way, if you don't already know, is the single most brilliant work about literary criticism I've ever come across. And my friend Fiona Sampson, poet and biographer, who has, a couple of years ago during COVID, published this extraordinary life of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Two-Way Mirror. Um, we should say also that this is a profoundly local event. Uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning being our local patron saint of poetry, she was, and I think I should hand over here to Fiona, she was brung up at Hope End just around the corner. Fiona, would you just tell us how she came to be there and, and how the family embedded itself here? Yes, she's a Herefordshire girl and she's not a Herefordshire girl. So she was born in County Durham, but her family moved here when she was four. Um, so she was born in 1806 and they moved here in 1810 to Hope End. I'm sure you know Hope End is sort of beyond at the back of Wellington Heath, Oyster Hill, lovely views. And her father was an international merchant. He was unfortunately also a slaver, um, so dirty money. Uh, but he was also a man with no British background. He had been brought up in the Caribbean himself and Hope End was the first time he had owned a home in England, in Britain. And I think that's really important because now I've gone quiet, perhaps because I said something controversial, <laughs> um, <laughs> because um, what he built at Hope End, as you may know if you're local, was an extraordinary folly, a kind of, and, and he was an amateur architect. He was a, a kind of, it's a kind of art brute, a kind of um, art sauvage attempt at Orientalism before Orientalism had quite taken off. Um, this is before Brighton Pavilion and so on. And he had a kind of early 19th century version of Snowsem around these turrets and these Moorish columns and so on. So it was a folly on a gigantic scale. They were fabulously wealthy but they were also a very domestic, loving family, lots of family jokes, nicknames, um, family activities, including teasing the firstborn, who was Elizabeth, about her aspiration to write poetry and encouragement, calling her the family's poet laureate. So from the very earliest um, stages, Elizabeth, who was called Barr by her family, saw herself as a poet and believed that she was going to grow up to be the poet laureate and in fact, nearly did, but Tennyson got the post in the end. But she also, I mean, her, her ambition was not only just to be a poet, she wanted to be Homer, right? She wanted to be Homer, yes. She wanted to marry Byron, but she also wanted to be not just the greatest woman poet, but the greatest poet. And what 
I, one of the things I absolutely love about Elizabeth Barrett Browning is, in a sense, how far she, long she got towards that, because like all women poets in the 19th century, she was in, broadly speaking, an autodidact. Yes, she came from a fabulously wealthy family. Yes, there was a family library. Yes, there were tutors for the family's sons until they went off to boarding school, and she was allowed to sort of join in on the lessons. But after that point, there was no guidance. So she taught herself largely ancient Greek and Latin. She, um, she was a prodigy. She was writing plays in French when she was six, seven, eight years old. Um, but she became an extraordinary poet who did change the direction of English prosody, did move um, us out of Romanticism into Victorian verse. And, and we can talk a lot, I'm sure we will, about what that means. And she and Tennyson were sort of working in parallel. Tennyson was younger than her, but she was a woman, autodidact, so developed a lot later. And yeah, she was nominated for Poet Laureate. And some of the books that she wrote, including particularly the famous sonnets, but also Aurora Lee, the first bildungsroman by a woman, the first Kunstlerroman by a woman, so the first story of a woman's becoming and of a woman's becoming an artist to be written, to be published, that, that was her masterpiece. So she made an incredible contribution. Just let me roll you back for a second. Uh, we're going to get to all of this, but can I just situate her in time? Mm. She falls between Austen and... That's right, Mary Shelley. So she's born nine years after Mary Shelley and ten years before um, Charlotte Bronte. So she's, she's, she's teetering. You know, I think she's, as it were the last romantic, partly because she herself was turned towards romanticism, turned and then heaving it, as it were, around with her into the Victorian era. Um, you know, a great admirer of the Shelleys and when she and Browning married and went to Italy, there, a strong sense that they were in the Shelleys' plural footsteps. But so she's, she's in this strange cusp, this transition. Just come, that whilst phenomenally privileged, Mm. You know, and you want to say to Robert Browning, what first attracted yes. you to the independently wealthy <laughs> heiress and romantic genius? And that. Um, but there are, there are handicaps here, aren't there? I mean, she had physical discomfort and disadvantage from a very early age. Mm. What is a spinal sling? A spinal sling is a ghastly piece of apparatus, which in the early 19th century you know, the quackery of conventional medicine believed that if you had something which wasn't susceptible, didn't seem susceptible to cure, something somehow endemic, whether or not genetic, um, it was in the illness, as it were, was lodged in the spine. So your spine had to be treated. Well, what do you do with the spine? So Elizabeth spent um, 13 months in Gloucester Spa, which is not the glamour of Cheltenham Spa, where the family used to go shop shopping, a very austere little place, um, being treated actually by a friend of Edward Jenner, so treated by the best of men. But she was sort of stretched, she was held in contraption. She became too weak even to lift a pen. She came home unable to walk. And the reason she was sent off to be treated, it seems pretty clear, was a kind of post-viral illness. She and her, both her sisters had measles. The other two recovered, and she didn't. It's kind of classic, we would say now, post-viral syndrome. And she was, you know, she was really poorly, got worse and worse, but was prescribed elm bark decoctions, which can make you 
kind of, if you, if you overdose on them, can make you have neurological problems. You know, all her treatments made her worse, in effect. And of course, the effect of that treatment, because she was only 15, was, was there for the rest of her life. So the rest of her life, she was really unwell. She had real pulmonary problems. She obviously had, you know, at the very least, bad asthma. But, it, you know, people have very bad asthma. And these were the days before not only antibiotics, but steroid inhalers. So all this nonsense about she was somehow a hypochondriac or she was playing up or she was, or feminist version, inverted commas, feminist version, she was creating the space to write. No, she lived with the fear of her mortality sort of every day of her adult life. And she wrote against it. I mean, it's a fabulous story of sort of overcoming. And the other thing, of course, is ethnicity. Well, I was going to ask you about that. You say that she came, her father was a slaver. She came from a culture that was connected to and engaged with mm. Jamaican... Uh, Sugar. Yeah. And also Jamaican people. Yeah. So she, and I hesitate to use the word, but identified as if not mixed race, certainly not white, didn't she? And she had anxieties about Although it, yes. that is a contestable Yes, I really issue. wanted it to be true, because it would be so fabulous if she were black. It would be such a wonderful sort of reclamation. Look, look at the canon, you guys, sort of thing. But I couldn't find any direct ancestry. But quite a lot of her, for example, her favorite uncle, so her father's brother, and um, she also had first and second cousins, who had relationships, ostensibly consensual, with enslaved women, who were or weren't released from slavery at the, that point or at the point when they were, inverted commas, widowed. And so she had, um, she had first cousins who were, um, you know, of global majority heritage. So she, you know, it wasn't a, a kind of, as it were, adolescent emo-y thing to think, oh, I might, you know, I might be, and I might be subject to racism. It was a, it was a, a reality that she had to, all her family had to confront it, but perhaps because she was a more thinking member of the family, she did confront it a bit more. And for someone who grew up to be a phenomenally articulate, politically aware, campaigning mm. justice warrior, yeah. I mean, there's a strong Wollstonecraftian there passion is, absolutely. about her. Yes. You could describe this to an empathetic energy and commitment. Yes, and simply the understanding that identity is not not neatly tied up and that you should you should question because I think one of the things that's very interesting is that although you could say she was a fairly late comer to um, the abolitionist movement um, she was a very early comer to women's rights around rape and rape being actually the shame of the, the rapist and not of the victim and um, I mean, Aurora Lee, one of the great things about that novel is that it's a, a fiction about many things, but one of the things it's about is when a woman is abducted into um, sexual enslavement and is raped and has a child, that woman is a victim. This is a time when such women are called fallen women. I mean, this is a time when, you know, such women are shamed and locked away and so on. And Elizabeth, who is harnessing mainstream Victorian morality and sometimes, in a sense, sort of you know, riding that carriage a little too, I think, too far. I mean, she's a little too complacent for my, in some ways for my, for my personal taste, is nevertheless going out on a limb at a time when she knows that would be shocking and saying, no, the child of that rape deserves a happy ch childhood. The child is a child. The child's mother is their mother. And she has, has been terribly done to. This is absolutely against the tide. Okay. 
Dinah, can you introduce us to Aurora Lee? Because I know we're going to talk about the sonnets, but we, I'd like to learn more about her development as a writer and what she was doing. Oh. Well, Aurora Lee is kind of really fascinating, I think, um, because, because it's sort of, it's a really interesting mix of kind of autobiography and, and poetry. And it's sort of about what, what it would be like to be a woman who is writing, uh, what, what it's like to write about, actually the sonnets are like this too, what it's like to be a woman who is writing about what it's like to write about men. How, you know, how do you, how do you fit yourself into this changing uh, literary landscape? You know, and so she kind of roars in with, with this extraordinary work, which is formally quite interesting um, as well. So it, it puts her kind of writing at, right at the, at the cutting edge of, of what's happening in, in literature at the time. What's the language like, Don? What's the language like? The language in the Aurora Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's too dense for us these days, and it's why, you know, sort of few people read it if they're not studying it, which of course is a great pity, you know. We were talking about this earlier, about different ways that one might present it, but I think there's, a, there's an intrinsic problem with trying to read something narrative where the language is so dense, um, you know, and so you have to read it slowly, you know, so, so uh, these days, you know, sort of competing against Netflix, you could tell it was written sort of, you know, uh, you know uh, in an age before subscription television. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> there was more time in the evening. But, um, so, uh, but, it's, but to, to, for us now, I think it reads as profoundly dense, you know, but, it, but it's wonderful. It's, um, uh, it's, 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 it has the same concentrated music, this being one of the impediments to easy reading that the sonnets do. Um, but I think for a contemporary reader, it might be better accepted. We had a conversation about this before. I mean, this is what they do with the prelude now. We now accept that the prelude... Rorale is about much more than just the author. It's about, you know, as sort of, you say, it's, it's, it's about the development of the artist. Um, uh, uh, and I think, you know, whereas the prelude is, is about Wordsworth and what Wordsworth thinks about Wordsworth, and it's, and it's wonderful, but, but half of it is, is, is a tough read. So what do we do these days? We tend to accept it, and certain accepts have become as well-known as individual poems of Wordsworth. I see no reason that we couldn't perform the same... Uh, uh, um, job on Aurora Lay. I mean, I mean, the fifth book, for example, just in terms of some passages about Ars Poetica, you know, sort of, you know, and, and criticism and the artist's role within the culture and, and, and the nature of inspiration and the nature of ambition are easily acceptable. And what we lack is a good selected poems that would accommodate that so people could read the book again, you know? Fiona, how well is it received? Aurora Lee, it seems to me to suffer from, I mean, it suffers in another way from the fact that it's verse, which is kind of, you know, the resistance among um, people who don't work with poetry in one way or another, possibly, to poetry. So that I think that it's missed out on being reclaimed when, you know, I don't know, the Virago boom, you know, in the 80s, and that kind of reclamation of women mm -hmm. writers, the fact that it's, it's verse makes, makes that very difficult. Um, my experience is very salutary that in the United States, it's an absolute staple of the university curriculum. Basically, anyone who's done an English major, or indeed minor, or uh, yeah, you know, in fact, almost more than the sonnets, or the sonnet, perhaps we should say. Whereas here, most people who have done, who have done an English degree haven't read Aurora Lee. I mean, that's different, obviously, from specialists, you know, work, but, and, 
Uh, uh, yeah, then it does seem a shame. Um, and perhaps it is that it is, it's too rich a pudding. You know, it's, it is a bit melodramatic. It is very funny. I mean, the, the, the writing about critical reception of women's writing in art is very funny. It's very sarcastic. Um, there's great writing about place. There's great writing about family and feeling a real capture of adolescent sensibility. I mean, loads and loads of things are going on it. And yes, that does make it unwieldy, I think. And it's, it's a loss. So she's relatively isolated. She's not terribly well. She's in a sort of permanent lockdown in mm. Hope End, yeah. um, the most painfully named place that a writer could, could live in. And yet she contrives to become celebrated, successful, and incredibly read. Mm. Now, what does red mean in those days? Because we're talking about publication in, um, in magazines, in uh, literary sheets, not necessarily yet in book form. So how does the early success come? Well, actually, she does publish prematurely. There's a lot of self-publishing, which, of course, in those days is not a separate thing. So, you know, she's being published when she's 14. Her first book is subsidised by family, but it comes out, and that's sort of not different from how some many adult poets are published. Her success, really, <coughs> real success, comes with Poems 1844. But The Seraphim, the collection before, is very well received. And reading is, as Don says, no, you said, sorry, um, that's a gender confusion. Um, that We're all the same. Yeah, you're all the same. The more um, I get <laughs> confused with Don, the happier I'm going to be. So, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of time in the evenings, actually. Now, I don't know which of you did no, say No, that was him. Yeah, well, sorry, it was, sorry, it was Don Patterson, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, who said... <laughs> And, and so there were two things going on. Success was, suddenly, it's unlike the Romantic era where it's a kind of um, an intellectual creative elite who are radical and are, are pulling against society. It's writing for, this is what people are doing f instead of telly, they're reading to each other by the far side. And then there's the other side of that, which is really a lot of critical attention. So, for example, poems at 1844, there's something like... Uh, well, I know with Aurora Lee there are 88 reviews. I mean, and these are, it's reviewed ever in the mainstream press, you know. <laughs> Poetry, can you imagine? And, um, and, and there are these periodicals like Blackwoods and the Athenaeum, which are mm, I, uh, sort of in a way like the LRB, in a way like Granta, in a way like um, uh, the Fondera, in a way like Times. I mean, there are several things put together. They're a kind of periodical that we don't really have now because everybody reads them because because that's the culture, that's where the culture's been made, and of course they can be nationally distributed. It's not just like theatre, it's in the Haymarket, great, but, you know, it's a reputational thing. You can read magazines, you can subscribe to them. So there's a tremendous power of periodical editors, um, and it's the Athenaeum, for example, who nominate Elizabeth for uh, the laureateship. So, yeah, so there's two forms of success going on. And, I mean, they're... They're bestsellers, you know. Aurora Lee is a bestseller. It sells out extremely quickly. And, and Dinah, how does her language develop? What's the progress? Is she... Don says Aurora Lee is incredibly dense, but the, whilst there are complexities and, and depth in the sonnets that are coming later, the denseness is, is going, isn't it? I mean, there's surely a lightness and a, and a flexibility of, of form that well, shows suppose, progression. Yeah, well, I suppose once you get to the, the sonnet, 
you know, where you've got, I mean, there's lots of arguments about this, but, you know, roughly kind of 14 lines, you know, and then sort of broken in this way. Um, you, you have to have a kind of economy of, of words. You can't do that kind of denseness. You can't do kind of endless, endless stuff. So, you know, you really have to boil it down to its, to its absolute essence, which is something something that Barrett Browning does very well. What's interesting about Barrett Browning, just thinking about her, um, her kind of literary d development, is that she knew Greek, which is really, really unusual for women in the period. Like, super unusual, to the point I can't even think of anybody else mm. um, who, who knows that. So, you know, she's got sort of that inheritance. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how she, kind of, how she kind of pulls that through and how that, how that kind of evolves. And she has her early obsession, doesn't she, with Greek prosody, with Uvedale Price, and yes. she's trying to, you know, how are we going to scan this? And, and, and maybe that's why her, her scansion is a little bit uncertain, a little bit wobbly in, in English, which, of course, is one of the things I like about it. I like that conversational... Yes, you're right. It's, it's like a translation or something. Mm. And so, you, yes, that, that, that kind of wobble that you get... Um, and that's also the kind of wobble you, you, you get when a poet is, is developing, you know, and they're kind of learning and they're trying on different voices, and di different selves in different guises. And you, and you can watch it. What I love um, with, with poets is nobody reads Juvenilia because, you know, it's juvenile, so that's, you know, that's childish. We wouldn't read it. But it's great. If you really love a poet, read their Juvenilia because you can, you can absolutely watch that voice develop. You can see the kind of wobbles and then suddenly, you know, they don't need to hold on to the furniture anymore and they start walking really, really beautifully. And I think, I think that's something that, that Barrett Browning, you know, has he's really hit it once she does the, the sonnets. So once she hits the straps, Don, how would you characterize, if you can, the voice that develops? Because it is intimate, it's quite often... Um, not declamatory, it's, no, it's not strident, it's not, it doesn't have that same extra demonstrative character that a lot of her male romantic, slightly predecessors seem to exalt in. Uh, I don't know, I mean it's pretty demonstrative, it's just, it, but, it, but it, it's certainly in a different mode. Partly that's as a result. I mean, the voice that she ends up is partly because she's so expert in form for her form and content and expression become largely the same thing, you know, as they are in music. And uh, sometimes I think that prostate is the only things I have strong opinions on. Do you know that? But I just, I, I, I just, I just want to just offer a, 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 an alternative view, which is that um, I think what we often mistake for sort of, uh, or could mistake for slippage or glitches or, 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 or or, or ripples in a prosody where it's uneven um, are, are, are signs of her virtuosity with it, you know, and, are, and, are, and, and this extraordinary training through Greek prosody. And I think the extent of her innovation, reading it, uh, you know, as a poet is something we're only catching up with now. I was looking at, what was it, um, Lady Geraldine's Courtship, mm. which has been misdiagnosed you know, uh, as, as a piece of trachaic uh, meter. And, and uh, Edgar Allan Poe picked up on it and wrote The Raven in imitation. But it's not. It's an anapest. As you got it from Greek, you know, it's in four-stress sort of triple 
uh, line, you know, da 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 very much of the sort that Browning would later deploy, but she was doing way ahead of time. Um, I, I, you know, and I think we're only just catching up with her sophistication. Mm. So by the time you get to the sonnets, you're talking about, you know, it's, for a poet, it's like a jazz musician listening to John Coltrane. I mean, it's just, it's, it's quite unbelievable. First of all, uh, you know, and all of this produces the voice. This is what's significant. She works in the hardest sonnet you can work in in English, which is a Petrarchan. It's only got four rhymes, which, and as we know, uh, English is a rhyme-poor language. It's hard to rhyme. So, so, so what do you do when you're faced with that? Uh, problem. You have to find some given the language in order to get the right words at the end. So if you're an Elizabethan, that's fine. You can just stick the word at the end. The word at the end you can stick and you can, you know, and, uh, change the sentence until you get the right word. But she doesn't do that. She, she goes for something quite frosty and actually uses a local reference and goes for something much closer to, you know, to a, a, a speaking intimate conversational voice, albeit Victorianized, you know, albeit with a sort of legacy of romanticism. Uh, and what she does instead is she introduces like radical enjambment, which is, which is running the syntax over the end of the line, which when you're writing pentameter, because it's an odd stress line, there's always a wee pause at the end of the line, so it's a big glitch. So there's, there's these deliberate glitches and accelerations at the end. And the other thing that she does is, I mean, sorry to get technical, but it's this thing called a cesura, which is where you have commas and full stops in the middle of the line itself. No one else is writing sonnets like this. So it's like they're like broken brickwork all the way down. They're not neat lines where every line corresponds with a phrase. Uh, they're lines where uh, the dramatic effect is enhanced through the agitation between the spoken expression and the form itself. And it's really dramatized because of this. And this is all just her responding to a particular technical exigency that she's set herself. There's no reason to make it this difficult. She does, and because she's a total virtuoso, she not only accomplishes it you know, seamlessly, she, she manages to lift something extraordinary out of it. And this is where she's, uh, she's really advancing you know, the, the, the language and the possibilities for the poets that then follow her. Um, it's an amazing piece of work. Mm. Can you just, just tease out that point you made about the Victorian voice that you said we would return to? and how it develops from what's just come before. Yes, there's a shift away. It's a thematic shift um, alongside... I couldn't agree more about that kind of virtuoso achievement of intimacy. But what I think makes her such a Victorian is the shift away from abstraction. And so, for example, when, say, Shelley, that's about Mont Blanc, you know, it's all about awe as a, as a cue to kind of existential truth. Whereas when Elizabeth writes about a landscape, for example, you know, uh, fields tied up like nosegays, um, fields tied up with hedges, hedges nosegay tight, you know, it's, it's, it's a sweeter register of imagery, nosegays, tied up, hedges, but it's also more purely descriptive. It, it's immediate, it's sensory, it's sensory apprehension. It's about embodied human-scale experience, and it's pressed into narrative and moral um, function. That's not to say that she can't um, you know, be metaphysical and use extraordinary imagery. I mean, there's some wonderful stuff about angels in two of the sonnets in particular, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about. But it's a much more... Um, she tends to bring things into land with a moral dimension, I mean, not only 
the runaway slave at Pilgrim's Point, where she will go, she's really, really risk-taking and really harsh with the imagery, but she's also doing something very sophisticated about black and white and making white the stain, the guilty thing, the evil thing. Um, but, you know, she can land it so well because she believes, and she says very early on in her prefaces, you, that the poetry... Poetry exists to clothe abstract thought, both philosophy and moral thought, in images so that people can apprehend the meaning of life or how we should be. And th that's what it's for. It's, in a sense, in service to a higher cause. And so although she has a massive poetic vocation, she sees poetry as instrumental. And that is very different from the romantic sense of you know, we must go out beyond the edge of ooh, raids on the inarticulate, really, raids on the unmapped, and, and drag our thinking um, towards, sorry to be boring, German idealism and, um, the, you know, uh, the essential, the fact that it's essential for us to experience the world, for the world to exist, and um, the nature of apprehension and the nature of our relationship with the world, which are all in quite philosophical kind of structural terms, for her it's about how do we live as people in this world? Mm. It's, it's, it's a really different, it is appealing to the family health side. Inst she, she's a family poet from when she's four years old. It doesn't change. Okay. Is, uh, before we talk about the sonnet, can I invite each of you to introduce and then we can discuss a sonnet that you've each chosen that isn't the sonnet? Um, <laughs> Dinah, would you like to you'd like to start? Um, I think that I, I would choose um, number one. <laughs> and it's a blaze of originality. Um, because I think, number one, that's got the incredible imagery that Fiona's just talked about. And also that, that kind, it's kind of a tight, almost domestic scene. It starts in a kind of a more grander tradition and then focuses on something um, quite uh, modern, quite interesting. Do, do you want me to, to read? Okay. <clears throat> I thought once how Theocritus had sung of the sweet years, the dear and wished-for years, who each one in a gracious hand appears to bear a gift for mortals, old and young. And as I amused it in his antique tongue, I saw in gradual vision through my tears the sad years, the melancholy years, those of my own life, who by turns had flung a shadow across me. Straight away I was ware, so weeping, how a mystic shape did move behind me, and drew me backward by the hair. And a voice said in mastery well I strove, guess now who holds thee? Death, I said. But there the silver answer rang, not death, but love. Hmm. So what, what I think is incredible about this is this is an opener, is, is that image. So we're in this kind of classical world. Oh yes, there's lovely there's songs and oh, to bear a gift for mortals, old or young. And as I mused it in his antique tongue, so that as I thought about, you know, writing in, in this way about love like the old Greek poets used to, and then suddenly this, this kind of figure, a mystic shape, comes in and grabs her by the hair. Um, you know, and a voice said in mastery, guess who now holds it? This is this really, really dark, really kind of terrifying moment. 
And she thinks this is death. But there the silver answer rang, not death, but love. Wow. <laughs> you know, if that, if that were a, a kind of TV show as you were talking, you know, one of those Netflix, I would watch the next mm. episode. I, I really, I need to know what happens next. That's an amazing image. And I love the idea that we think we're going dark, but we go light. This is something Victorians don't do, classically. Usually with Victorians, you know, I, I study Rossetti. And she often just writes about how terrible love is, you know, how appalling it is and it wrecks you. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, that's kind of what I'm expecting from this sort of sonnet. But no, no, it's not the scary thing. It's not scary. It's great. And it's now going to be great for 40-something more sonnets. And, this thing, and it's not going to come back and be like, too scary. Okay, I'm going to scare you once or twice. But mostly this is going to be a great kind of pay-in to love. And I, I think that's just an extraordinary... Um, extraordinary way to open. I also love, if, if we want to get technical, because I know you like to get technical, um, if you look at the, the sesta, the last kind of six lines, um, you have really interesting uh, movement in the rhyme. So you have where, move, hair, strove, there, love. So we've got where, hair, and there. Okay, we know where we are. But move, strove, love. She's, play, she's playing really beautifully with, with the rhyme there. So it's just like Don was saying, she's making this rhyming exercise interesting, even though she's not doing this in a romance language. She has to do this in English, which, let's face it, is kind of boring when it comes to rhymes. Um, but she's making it interesting by doing all these slant rhymes. And she's, she's moving and striving and loving, move, strove, love. You know, she's, she's, she's boxing clever. Um, you know, and she, and she takes us along with her. Brilliant. Thank you. John. Uh, oh, spoiled for choice. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read 14, I think, um, probably very badly. And, but, but it does kind of... Um, uh, it's one of these that, to my mind, points both backwards and forwards. Honestly, you could slip this, but if it wasn't for the reported speech, you could slip it into Shakespeare's sonnets and no one would bat an eyelid. Yet, at the same time, you could tell someone it was by Hardy and they'd probably not bought it. But, you know, it's just like, it's, it's kind of squares a stylistic circle. It's quite incredible to me. But, it's, um, but also, it points to the fact that, like Shakespeare... And you were talking about it also being about writing as well as love. You know, she's using the subject of love you know, as an excuse to write about other things too. Because as we know, as, as we know through the early poems in uh, Aurora Lee and, and a lot of these sonnets, she likes doing philosophy through poetry. She likes, th she likes thinky poetry. She likes using the form of the poem to work out what, what, what's true. So, um, so so you get a lot of just straightforward what we'd call metaphysical conceit as well as, 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 um, as love sonnets here. Um, yeah, I love that about the fact that you know it's not going to get that dark from the start. And, uh, you know, even though she often goes really dark with it and it's often literally, you have saved me from the grave that I was really looking forward to getting into. Um, and, uh, and he, of course, he literally has, you know. Um, but, yeah, I love the way that it's rooted there but, but always looking up to heaven. Um, anyway, 14, sorry. Um, 
if though, uh, can I just point out, because <laughs> I'm a bore, um, another technical point here, which is to do, and it's, it's a beautiful thing, it's the way she uses repetition in order mm -hmm. to get some shape into the line. When you say a word uh, uh, in English and then you say the word again, the second time that you say the word, your voice goes down like that because you've said the word the first time. So that, the second time you say it, it's just pointing back to the first time you said it as if it was a, it's a, to the antecedent, as if it was that, that thing there. And it just means that any time you repeat anything, your voice has to go up and down. Um, and, she, and she kind of uses this. This has come about through the, you know, the way she's worked the line and the, uh, and the rhymes. But it means that when you read it, and this is why I'm going to read it badly, you have to express it. You have to put sense stress as well as meter into the line, which is to say you have to perform your interpretation of her sense. And the sort of dramatic power that that forces on you as a, as a reader makes it so kind of muscular. Um, anyway, 14. If thou, if thou must love me, let it be for naught except for love's sake only. Do not say I love her for her smile, her look, her way of speaking gently, for a trick of thought that falls in well with mine, and such as brought a sense of pleasant ease on such a day. For these things in themselves, beloved, may be changed or changed for thee, and love so wrought may be unwrought so. Neither love me for thine own dear pities wiping my cheeks dry. A creature might forget to weep who bore thy comfort long and lose thy love thereby. But love me for love's sake that evermore thou mayst love on through love's eternity. Keller. <laughs> so jealous. <laughs> yeah. It is hard to choose, isn't it? Um, I think I'll read um, number 22 because, um, because it's just phenomenal imagery, which is one of those words I hate um, said about poetry, like voice. It suggests a kind of incredibly limited version of what poetry is. But it's not actually metaphor, and it's not actually metaphysics, but it's something in between, let's say vision. And I just think it's extraordinary. Number 22. And she has this thing about angels because in number... There's another way where she talks about, um, oh, if our angels were to knock each other's wings as they were passing by each other. Just an incredible image. It makes me think of um, Powell and Pressburger and... Um, what's it called, the film about, you know, an Irish man and for Caesar, you know, the... Um, a Matter of Life and Death. Yeah, thank you. So... When our two souls stand up erect and strong, face to face, silent, drawing nigh and nigher, until the lengthening wings break into fire at either curved point, what bitter wrong can the earth do to us that we should not long be here contented? Think, in mounting higher, the angels would press on us and aspire to drop some golden orb of perfect song into our deep, dear silence. Let us stay rather on earth, beloved, where the unfit, contrarious moods of men recoil away and isolate pure spirits and permit a place to stand and love in for a day with darkness and the death hour rounding it. I just think it's an extraordinary poem. I love, obviously, the 
lengthening wings break into fire at either curved point. I didn't read curved, sorry, I read curved. It's curved point. I love the way she's thinking aloud. Think of this, and then look, what, earth, what could earth do to us in that context? So she's this kind of having us think along with her. It's a very inclusive gesture, and it's also a great way to get the reader thinking. Um, and then she does this, she always piles on, as well as repetition, she will use two adjectives, which feels like repetition. So deep, dear silence, unfit, contrarious, obviously, who could not love the word contrarious as well. Um, moods of men recoil away and isolate pure spirits. And then that killer last line, a place to stand, this is, sorry, last couplet, a place to stand and love in for a day with darkness and the death hour rounding it. <laughs> it was as good as, you know, our little life is rounded with a sleep, isn't it? I mean, you know. She's, mm. Can I just, before we do the um, God, it's such a big elephant, but it's a good one. Um, when you make the comparison, as you both have with Shakespeare, and we'll talk about this when we talk about Shakespeare's sonnets with Emma um, tomorrow, um, there is sometimes a thought in Shakespeare's sonnets that an awful lot of it is about one person, whereas, to bend a phrase, there are two people in all of these sonnets. Mm. Mm. And the thing that I think makes them so sort of rapturously sexy and beautiful and loving is that you never get the feeling from any of these sonnets that it's about her or about the speaker or whoever I might be. Is that fair? I mean, is that technically also true? Uh, uh, certainly my experience, you know, is that yeah, you never lose sight of the recipient at all. And you never feel this is a, a, some kind of performance. And occasionally, in, actually in Shakespeare's sonnets, he does forget himself and he, and he writes something that's purely self-directed. Or he's forgotten that, it's supposed to, it's, uh, that he's supposed to be writing about the beloved. He starts addressing some rival. And he goes, anyway, this is about you. But anyway, I'm just going to address this for now to hand over there of whom I am very jealous. I'll remember you. It's, anyway, so, but this never lose sight, sight of his object. And, you know, and I don't know, it's, it's, this is really dodgy territory because it might be making some kind of gendered point, but it does strike me as about a distinctly feminine kind of desire that is really vigorously celebrated here. Um, where um, the object is is uh, uh, is just could only be that person, and could only be that person whose whom she regards as an intellectual equal, you know. And uh, and I think sometimes that's something that's downplayed when we talk about this sequence. It's, it's not passive, uh, you know. It's it's uh, it has designs on its recipient, and it was written with those designs in mind. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really sexy, I should say. Yeah. Okay. Can I say something about that? Yeah, please. Which is that, of course, she was ashamed of them. She didn't show Robert for three years because she knew he disapproved of confessional verse. And luckily, by the time she showed them to him, he was probably only too glad to have such fabulous poems written about him. I mean, who wouldn't be? Um, and so there is sort of a real-world aspect. Of course, we can't know about the ordering, and perhaps we ought to talk a little bit about the title, that Robert's clever idea was, this is a really outre thing you've done. 
because what she's done is, isn't it, she's stepped into the, the shoes of the male who writes the sonnet. It's, a, it's, a, it's the literary equivalent of the male gaze in art. You know, it's, it's the sonnet of male desire. It might not necessarily be heterosexual desire, but it's just male desire. And she's doing it. She's writing back, back to a man. And um, so there's all of that. And what does that do to Robert? Yes, she writes... She's very careful to keep saying there are laws on your brow and so on. But, you know, how, is it emasculating? Did she think it would be emasculating? Is that why it was hard for her to show them to him? Uh, but anyway, he says, well, give them a title, say that they're translated sonnets, and then people won't think you've confessed, you know, sexual desire for someone before you're married. So she says, oh, I'll call them sonnets translated from the Bosnian. Um, <laughs> but it becomes from the Portuguese partly because Robert called her my little Portuguese, which brings us back to her hereditary stuff, um, but also because of the, the, uh, the Portuguese letters, the, the 17th century French kind of literary phenomenon, which are supposed to be letters of sexual desire written by a nun, a Portuguese nun. Um, she also puts it next to a poem about um, Portuguese poet Camion in her uh, collection. So she really disguises it. She wraps it up. This is about me. No, it's not about me. This couldn't be confessional verse. Heaven spirit, you know. Yeah. Can I ask you, was its critical reception found to be, in its critical reception, did anyone find it to be unseemly in that way? No, they didn't because she disguised it. But in fact, of course, because she put it in poem, it published it in Poems 1850, which critics taught, thought to be simply a rehash of Poems 1844, actually the first reception was very muted. I understand. I oh, understand. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting, you know, because we've talked about Shakespeare, but the other elephant in the room is Petrarch, right? Mm. You know, so, so this, is, this is who she's she's imitating with these, these sonnets. So normally in this tradition, it, it, it was kind of Petrarch writing about Laura and how beautiful she is and how much he loves her and, oh, she's lovely. Um, you know, <laughs> and this goes on for ages and ages and ages. And now Barrett Browning's taking on this mantle and kind of going, there's this guy and he's so gorgeous. You know, and, and she's kind of <laughs> writing about it. Really, this, and I, honestly, I'm not just being kind of glib. That, that's really what this is, this is like. I mean, I find it extraordinary she got away with this in the era. I, mm. I, I genuinely find this extraordinary. Um, and one of the things she does as well, uh, which is in the Petrarchan tradition, so you, you need to talk about how beautiful Laura is, but you also need to talk about how lovely you are and how terribly unworthy. Um, and Barrett Browning does this. You know, and she's a woman in, a, in an era that, you know, like our own, really prizes female beauty. And that's kind of what a woman's worth. And these are sonnets on and on and on about, I don't know, kind of going gray and being sick and being older. Because she, she's older when she marries, you know, she's always older than him. the day. Yes, seven years. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, she goes on and on. And, you know, I can't believe that you love me with my, you know, pale, wrinkly face and gray hair. Um, you know, this is a really, really radical mm. move. She's not, it's not just a simple reversal where she's objectifying the man. You know, she's also talking about herself. But as somebody who's worthy of love and sexual love and passion, it's, you know, in middle age, that it isn't just done. She's only just getting started. It's extraordinary. It's that great bit, isn't it? Where she says something like, you know, the merest spark of my desire will burn your hair off yeah. if, you, <laughs> if the wind gets too close to it. So yeah. Your laurels won't protect you. Okay, listen, the <laughs> clock is ticking. We need to get there. Um, to the, the single most quoted poem 
uh, and arguably the most uh, spectacularly romantic poem in the English language. Can I just ask you, all three of you, about the last line, which comes as a bit of a hammer blow um, into this beautiful rose garden? Um, how do we read it? Fiona. Well, there are quite a lot of sonnets align, Robert, with God. They're kind of, I was looking for God and you came into my sight. And the when our two souls stand upright, you know, that sense of to love Robert is I gesture of such rightness that you're kind of aligned, she's kind of aligned herself with the divine. It sounds incredibly hippie, and I'm sure I'm paraphrasing her thought terribly. But um, I also feel it's like a kind of ducking gesture, kind of crossing your fingers. It reminds me of sort of Descartes, and, you know, he's anxiety about, here, I'm going to do an abstract philosophy, but, oh, but I must keep God in the picture, because, of course, God exists. So let's kind of, you know, anchor this. There's a, although, obviously, it was Descartes is much more structural, but um, that sense of, I'm not so profane that I'm not also doing it within a kind of Christian kind of building, really. I think what interests me about this line is, yes, there's that, that, that kind of invocation, that nod to God, because we kind of forget about him <laughs> for, for long stretches. Um, but yeah, I shall but love thee better after death. It also sounds like a bit of a threat, um, but it also sounds, I shall but love thee better after death. To me, that's got to be about writing. She's going to love him better after death, after both of their deaths, because they're both dead now. Day, so long as this. But I'm reading this poem now, and we're all thinking of them. And that's the power of this poem, and it knows it. Okay. Um, Don, will you um, read it? Okay. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach, and feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. And, if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. You can do the last line a lot of different ways. It's like the last line of an Arundel tomb or something like that. It's, it's, uh, where do you put the stress? Not on me. No. The answer is you all have to find your own way of delivering that to whoever you most care about. Um, thank you all very much indeed. I, we have time for 10 minutes or so questions. Actually, do you know what? We're the last event on. You can keep them here for as long as you like. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, do please put up... Oh, we also take requests. If you'd like them to read any other poems, we can do that too. Um, the questions are better heard and indeed recorded for posterity if you hold the microphone two or three inches in front of your mouth. Um, who would like to ask a question? Yeah, first one from the gentleman at the back. Many thanks. Um, tonight you've been discussing uh, exclusively, really, the, or orally, the sonnets from the Portuguese. 
um, which are all numbered, aren't they? Um, she'd written lots of other sonnets before that, and I, and I, I wonder if how you rate the earlier sonnets against the sonnets of the Portuguese. I mean, they're given lots of different titles, like Bereavement and The Finite and the Infinite and On a Portrait of Wordsworth and so on. They're, they're, they're very varied and diverse in subject matter. Um, how do you rate them compared to the sonnets from the Portuguese which you've been talking about this evening? Diana. Uh, well, as you can probably tell, um, I'm such a huge fan of, <laughs> of sonnets from the Portuguese. I just think they're so, I just think they're so fantastic, just as a su sustained exercise. Um, you know, I think they feel to me like something she's been in training for her whole life. You know, and then, and then here it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I try to convince students of this <laughs> all the time. That's, that's one of my missions, because one of the funny things about these sonnets um, is, is how they've kind of fallen out of fashion. You know, and, and, and one of the things I would love to know is sort of why. Sorry, that's another issue. John. Um, yeah, I do think uh, they've, they've been unjustly eclipsed by, by the, the sonnets. Well, the, the sonnets from the Portuguese are clearly the major work. Um, I think that means that we don't read the earlier sonnets as carefully. And I think grief from the poems from uh, 44, for example, is one of the finest poems in the English language. It's just flawless, and it's amazing. It's an amazing sonnet. And, and, and I, I've, I've read it a thousand times, and I find new things in it even now. And, and, and it does all the same technical things as she was doing later, maybe with you know, sort of not quite as much ease. Um, but you really do get the sense of someone who's sprung fully formed from the womb as a poet. You know, it's just, it's quite astonishing. I mean, it, 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 it's all there. Finite and Infinite is another favourite. I think it's a superb poem, a superb piece of, again, philosophy done through poetry and argued out through poetry. It's a, it's a weightless, beautiful poem. So I think, um, I, you know, again, I think there's maybe a bit of a, Unfortunate Wimple Street sort of lens is going over this thing that has allowed us to, you know, sort of, you know, just because of its subject matter, place too much attention on the, uh, on the sonnets um, to, uh, it, you know, at the expense of some of the others. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, beautiful, uh, Wordsworth and, and the friends, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we can we just deal with Wimple Street thing? Yeah, no, you. Yeah. You've... I mean, I think that she's fallen out of. Uh, I think she's fallen out of the canon, and I think, and I think that's why the sonnets from Portuguese have. I mean, personally, my vote is for the sonnets from the Portuguese in the sense that, by being a sequence, they're more than just sonnets. They're a sonnet sequence. Whether or not she intended that when she started writing them, and there is a going deeper that comes with that. Um, and I think that one of the reasons she's fallen out of the canon is because she has been eclipsed by the story of her private life. Um, the person I worked on before, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, was Mary Shelley, and there, was, there is a similar story there in the sense of the commercial, you know, what's happened to the Frankenstein myth and therefore what's happened to Mary Shelley. Um, although at least that's on the national curriculum now. And I think that it's so... It's so heartbreaking that someone who makes such a major contribution 
just because she was fool enough to fall for someone. And he was also a publisher, so he was also a published writer. I mean, a very fine poet who learnt very much of the amazing techniques of men and women from Elizabeth. It's Elizabeth Poetics. Um, but they shared a surname. There's no way, better way to be deleted from the canon than to share a surname. Again, Mary Shelley. You say Shelley, you mean Percy. You don't mean Mary. And it's the same for, for Elizabeth. You have, to, you, have to find, you, know, you have to find a way well, to frame her. Yeah, unless you're a bookseller in which you say Shelley, and one of these people has sold like a billion books, and the other one really hasn't. Yeah, but now it's Mary Shelley who sold the books. Yeah, that's books. what I mean. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But so I think the myth has occluded the work, and therefore the work has fallen out of fashion, and therefore, and the myth is down to the barracks of Wimpole Street and the telly, and all the, the, all the versions have been of it. There's even been a musical with um, numbers in it, yeah, in the 70s, with a masterpiece of kitsch. I'm trying to remember what the numbers are called, something like, I want to be well. There's actually a song called I want to be well. I mean... Uh, is there one a bit flush? I hope so. I hope so, too. Well, and Virginia Woolf, I'm sorry, I adore Virginia Woolf, but she didn't do EBB any favours either by writing flush, which is not an act of literary homage, it's an act of literary deconstruction. Elizabeth Barrett writing is so unimportant that I will replace her with her dog. Now, I'm a dog lover, and I cry every time I read Flush, at the end of Flush, when Flush dies. But nevertheless, you know, she, despite her terrible hairdo, which does look like a spaniel, I mean, there was more to Elizabeth Barrett-Earning than a spaniel. <laughs> Dinah, Don, Fiona, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for being a lovely audience. And thank you on Zoom. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.